Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. While my co-host Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is away, I've picked up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last time, I covered the first part of The Siege of Gondor, Book 5, Chapter 4 of The Lord of the Rings, and this week we're going to finish that chapter up. So after the intense extended scene with Denethor and Faramir I talked about last time, Gandalf and Pippin have a little debriefing, which also gives the audience a chance to catch our breath and take stock before Tolkien takes us over the next higher hill on this roller coaster of a chapter. And I love that all that matters to Pippin and all that he's heard is Frodo. Is there any hope for Frodo? Even though he qualifies it. Well, mostly for Frodo. A little for us, but mostly for him. Because his mission is the most important of all. And also because he's my friend, and I love him. Pippin's head and heart are both in the right place, able to align with one another, which is exactly what Denethor can't seem to do. Always exalting his own position, and then crumbling when the inadequacies of that position make themselves clear. Gandalf talks to Pippin much in the same way he talked to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli when they ran into him in Fangorn Forest. It's a mix of intimacy and detachment, sharing his thoughts as they zoom in and out, showing us how he sees things. As always, what separates Gandalf from Sauron and Saruman, the villains of the piece, is his humility, acknowledging not only that there are limitations on his sight, but also that those limitations are a good thing. He's honest with Pippin, admitting that sending in Frodo was always a risky move. Only a fool's hope, he says, mocking Denethor's scornful attitude, but also accepting the insult of fool as true on some level. As Gandalf said way back at Rivendell, the advantage of the wild unlikely move is that Sauron will never see it coming. The folly of it is their hope. Gandalf says that even Pippin's dumbass decision to look into the Seeing Stone helped because it may have inspired Aragorn to do the same. Tolkien might be cheating a bit here by having Gandalf figure out what happened with so little information, but he is the smartest guy around, so we can forgive that. Gandalf ultimately says it doesn't matter, people elsewhere in the world will do what they do, all they can do is focus on what's in front of them, and what's in front of them is a good night's sleep. But, Pippin says, but, Gandalf says, staff at the ready ready to smack him down, Pippin brings up Gollum. That's the other part of the story that really stuck out to him, that Frodo and Sam are going around with Gollum and even letting him lead the way. How can that be? Once again, the hobbits are still stuck in this kind of childish binary approach to the morality of the world, insisting that Gollum must be purely evil and purely a monster, and there's nothing to be gained from bringing him along. Gandalf, while he can't perfectly see the future, knows differently than that. His heart said that Frodo and Gollum would meet, and remember way back at the beginning of the story, he insisted to Frodo that Gollum's story was a sad one and that he should try to develop some empathy, because the same thing could very easily happen to Frodo as it almost happened to Bilbo. And that's the same kind of lesson Pippin has to learn here. The next day brings a morning that is not a morning. It's a brown dusk, Tolkien writes, giving way to starless blackness. Hiding in that fog are the Nazgul. And they don't even need to be seen, only heard. That's enough to break men's hearts and make them burst into sobs. Military discipline is basically impossible to maintain under these circumstances. The shadow is designed to evaporate your courage, 
convince you there's no reason to hope, and you might as well accept your fate. We'll see the most dramatic example of that with Denethor. The only hope was Faramir, and now he's gone again. Denethor dispatched him on what is basically a suicide mission, and remember, Gandalf is worrying he might have done the same thing to Frodo. These characters aren't completely and totally separated from one another in Tolkien's mind, they're, they're part of a spectrum of decisions in the face of this threat. Denethor's counselors determined that they don't have the strength to strike the enemy. They must man the walls and wait. And Denethor, you can tell, can't stand that. It smacks of passivity and weakness. His character is all about pride and grief. The terrible feeling of surrendering that which we lost so much to have. We can't lose the city walls, Denethor says. They were made with great labor. And that's true, but irrelevant. The Witch King will take them in this chapter all the same. Boromir fought to defend Osgiliath, Denethor says. Yeah, so what? As Faramir says, that was a trial, a testing of their defenses. Now the real deal has arrived, and the valiant warrior image of Boromir the Brave is being obliterated by both numbers and fear. Denethor is holding on to something already gone, and losing more in the process, sending his second son out to die for the memory of the first one. A perfect illustration of the obsession with death that characterizes the world of men in its current state, that which must be redeemed by the return of the king. Much must be risked in war, Denethor says. Which is true, but that says nothing about which risks are worth taking and which aren't. Gandalf's risk with Frodo and the Ring was worth taking, because, as he said, he couldn't trust himself or Denethor or any of the movers and shakers of Middle-earth to take the Ring. Denethor senses that he and his city are also being put at risk in service of a larger plan that is not entirely about the glory of Gondor, and he takes out his impotent rage on Faramir, putting him at unnecessary risk to assert his power, to demonstrate that he can. Faramir seems helpless, out of love and duty. He's putting it all on the line to replace Boromir in his father's heart. It's the horror of conditional love, of, Denethor, of Faramir begging his father to love him when he returns, and Denethor saying, That depends on how you return. I will withhold my affection as I have before until then. Gandalf, as usual, by contrast, speaks to the ideal of stewardship, telling Faramir, You will be needed for things other than war, which is all this place has become. And that conversion to a permanent wartime state is linked to the repression of Denethor's love. It's that heartbreaking line Gandalf says, Your father does love you, Faramir and he'll remember it before the end. Which is perfect. It's, it's not that Denethor has lost affection for Faramir, but he has forced himself to forget it because he thinks that's, what, that's what's necessary in these times. That's what he said to Faramir earlier in the chapter, that being good and gentle like you were to Frodo, like that, that feels nice, that sounds nice, that might be okay in peace, but not in war. And yet, Denethor's preparations for war immediately come to nothing. The Witch King's enormous army from Minas Morgul that Frodo saw, reinforced by more men from the south, sweeps over the river and takes Osgiliath. The preparations are made practically irrelevant, by force and by fear. The Witch King is so primally terrifying, he makes people kill themselves. No wonder the north is so bleak, no wonder only the grim rangers were left behind of that kingdom. This is how it went. They were defeated on the inside first, their souls claimed before their bodies, made into wraiths in service of power. Gandalf rides forth to face the Witch King, but his glimmer fades in the night, as Tolkien writes, and when the morning bells come, they seem sarcastic to Pippin. There's no day. There's no hope. There's no more structure to their life but waiting to die. The only light is red, 
the wrath of Sauron, his fires consuming the wall. Inside the city, they can hear heavy blasts as the orcs blow breaches into it. It's less visceral than Helm's Deep when we saw the explosions directly, but there's an even stronger palpable sense of dread when the people yell to, them, yell to each other, they are coming. It's very reminiscent to the language in Moria, that book Gandalf read of we cannot get out, they are coming. Once again, it feels like our heroes have walked into a trap. Gandalf returns to the city carrying in the wounded. That's his role now, shepherding the fallen. As he says, guard the hurt men that can yet be healed. He brings that energy to Denethor, who is just sitting atop his tower, more like Sauron than ever, surrounded by gloom, his eyes piercing in all cardinal directions. Like Baragond, he asks only after Faramir, who stayed with his men, trying to hold them together against fear, against a foe even Gandalf says he fears. Pippin chimes in at this point, and he can only imagine that that foe is Sauron himself. And why not? If Pippin pictures Sauron, it's probably like a bigger, more badass ringwraith, like the spiky guy we see at the beginning of the movie trilogy. That big iron hedgehog Sauron. In the same way that Sam couldn't grasp from a map how far it actually is to Mordor, and in the same way Pippin can't quite get a handle on who or what Gandalf is actually, the idea of Sauron as he exists is a little over the hobbit's heads, so to speak. Sauron doesn't really have a physical form anymore. Even the eye is as much a concept as a reality. He's pure power, the shadow, disconnected from anything that might ground him in mortality. It's like talking about a god. If Sauron comes to Minas Tirith, it will be more like a ghost than a guy wearing armor and carrying a big fucking sword. Pippin can be forgiven his ignorance. Denethor, less so. Even here and now, he somehow manages to turn this into a brag, saying Sauron would only come to personally defeat him, Denethor, protagonist of reality. The great irony being that, as Gandalf realized, it's Aragorn who has actually provoked this reaction. The return of the king, that's what Sauron fears, not the defiance of the steward. But Sauron isn't here, of course, he leads from behind, which Denethor actually praises him for, saying that's what all great lords do, including me. Why do you think I spent my sons? It's truly chilling stuff. An example of Tolkien's complex perspective on these characters paying dividends. Even as he resists Sauron, Denethor is becoming Sauron, showing us what the Dark Lord would be like if he was still a flesh-and-blood individual rather than a voice in your head. Sauron is the essence of control, turning men into wraiths, enslaving entire armies, refusing to share power with anyone, hence one ring to bind them all. Gandalf and the hobbits are resisting Sauron because they think that's a bad thing. Denethor is resisting Sauron because he thinks being in charge is his job. He believes that so deeply that he has sacrificed his own family for it. And yet, he says, he's still able to fight himself if it comes to it, showing off that he's wearing armor and a sword underneath his cloak. He sleeps like that, in fact. And this is part of what makes Denethor such an interesting character, as multidimensional as his son's. On the one hand, as he says, he's kept himself from growing timid and frail with age. He hasn't fallen into Theoden's trap. On the other hand, it's so performative, it's just for show. Denethor doesn't actually lift that sword in defense of his people, like Theoden is about to do out on the Pelennor fields. Denethor abandons his people in favor of a funeral pyre. So his commitment is very abstract, suiting nothing but his own conception of himself as righteous. Denethor refuses to face reality treating all information like ammo he can use against his rivals. 
Gandalf says the Witch King has come. Sorcerer, Ringwraith, titles, titles, titles. And Denethor says, yeah, no shit. Sauron sent his pet monster. Who could have seen that coming? Is that why Gandalf's here? He asks. Aw, little wizard had to run and hide. Denethor is taunting his only hope. And Pippin mentally prepares himself to be basically covered in Denethor's ashes after Gandalf evaporates him with a look. But the wizard holds his temper. The Witch King may well be too strong for me, he admits, while also implying that he's definitely too strong for Denethor, hidden sword or no hidden sword, because ancient prophecy says his doom shall not come from man. And then Gandalf turns and winks at the camera a bunch of times, but Tolkien forgot to write that. Gandalf, as usual, is focused on what he can do, the task at hand. I may not be able to defeat the monster at our gates, but I can heal those he has wounded, like Aragorn will do after the battle. And I can use what strength we have in a way that will do the most good. We should take advantage of Sauron's one weakness, Gandalf says. He doesn't have much in the way of cavalry. Denethor, once again, says he already knew that, thanks for nothing. All that matters is that I win the conversation. Faramir's men begin to emerge from the darkness below, stragglers pulling themselves inside the gate. The tension grows because we can't see what they're running from. Not yet. It's left to our imagination which is where it will be the most terrifying. And that's not only true of the reader, it's true of the characters peering out into the shadow, because fear is the enemy's most potent weapon in this battle. Long before the orcs arrive, the fires burn, lines across the field converging on the road, an image that makes me shiver like the lightning blast exposing all the white hand icons at Helm's Deep. Only at the last second does the fear take form. Orcs, Southrons, and above all, the Nazgul. Winged shadows, Tolkien writes, stooping to the kill. It's like they're predators, and we're nothing more than prey. We can't fight and win a war against them any more than mice could fight and win a war against birds. Nature is on their side now. Resistance wins only brief victories, a cavalry charge with Gandalf at the head. The hunters become the hunted, Tolkien writes, the crowds cheer desperately from the city walls, but Denethor won't let them go far. And to be fair to him, that's for good reason, as the Witch King's full strength comes flowing over the fields. Even as the horses step proudly back inside, the people's hearts are troubled. So many are dead. And at first, it looks like Faramir is one of them. He was stricken by a dart from a retreating Nazgul. And that's a nice touch. It makes the omnipotent villains look sneaky and cowardly, like the shadows they are. Their weapons are potent, though, as we know from Frodo's wound at Weathertop. The city weeps for Faramir, their fallen hero, their Hector whose death threatens to rip the heart out of the city under siege. None grieve more than Denethor. Tolkien handles this masterfully, making you feel the city's despair so we'll understand Denethor's pain as well, even as we know that he is the architect of his own doom. He retreats to his tower, and a white light stabs outward. Even before you know it's another seeing stone, you can tell what it means when that light fades. Life is going out here like a candle. When Denethor comes back down, he looks like he's aged years. Death, the ancient enemy, the only enemy that really matters, is catching up with him at last. He looks more dead than Faramir, Tolkien writes. Faramir still fights for life, while his father is dead on the inside. And so the war arrives at Minas Tirith. There is less focus here on logistics and deployment than Helm's Deep, which is why I think that battle carries more weight with folks interested in the, the nitty-gritty military details of it all. But it's not like Tolkien is trying to match that density and falling short this time. 
He's after something else entirely. A battle built on emotions, on fear, defeating your enemy by breaking their hearts and minds. The men of Gondor watch the endless rows of orcs dig trenches to guard catapults, and the men laugh. Gondor might be a shadow of what it once was, but these walls are still strong, cunningly designed by men who learned craftsmanship from the elves, who learned it from the literal gods. If the Witch King thinks he's getting in here by shattering those walls, he's got another think coming. But that's not his plan. Instead, his soldiers catapult in heads. Severed heads of men. Those who fell at Asgiliath, or on the gates, or out in the fields. Even as the heads have been mutilated or branded with the great eye, you can still make out the faces. You can still tell they died in pain, without any hope left, and so you lose yours. Tolkien does some of his most searingly emotional work here, summoning a passion you have to imagine is rooted in his own wartime experience, writing that it often chanced that thus a man would see again the face of someone that he had known, who had walked proudly once in arms, or tilled the fields, or ridden in upon a holiday from the green vales in the hills. Even your love is turned against you. The bonds of friendship Tolkien so movingly describes throughout the story, the enemy has weaponized them, cruelly mocking our love for one another by forcing us to stare at what happened to our neighbors and comrades. Even the memory of those green veils in the hills is painful now. That is more powerful than any cannon shot. This is how Mordor makes war. Tolkien writes they're not even relying on hunger, as some people in the city worry at first, because dread and despair work faster than that. The Nazgul fly overhead shrieking, and soon men lose even the strength to curse them. Tolkien's gnarly heavy metal imagery returns, the Nazgul he describes as vultures waiting to carve up dead men's flesh. So you, a warrior of Gondor, you might as well already be dead. You're like a starving man crawling in the desert with the vultures circling you. Just lay down and end it. They get inside your head, this is how they beat you, from the inside out. And that particularly applies to Denethor, and I'm going to talk more about what happens with him and Faramir when I get to the chapter The Pyre of Denethor, because that's a pretty short chapter, and a lot of what's going on with Denethor ties more directly into that. So kind of mentally snip that part of the chapter out here. Let's cut to Pippin, running away from what happens with Denethor and Faramir, and trying to find Gandalf. And this is very reminiscent of Bilbo descending into the Lonely Mountain despite fear of Smaug, writing it was the hardest thing he ever did. And Pippin has to get past what Tolkien describes as a gust of fear and horror as he races through the city. The pace is breathless as he runs past all the raging fires, and then all that momentum comes to a stop. Tolkien tells us that Pippin has found Gandalf, but he's not alone. The structure here is so strong, as the author leaps back from this moment to tell us how the siege has been going while Pippin tried to handle Denethor. The scope widens back up to Tolkien's signature grand imagery, a canvas of fire and stone and siege engines, giving way to Grand, the pure embodiment of Mordor. It's basically Sauron's dick. Grand is a battering ram, named for the Warhammer of Morgoth emphasizing that Sauron is, as Gandalf says, just a herald or emissary of the evil forces of the world. He's carrying out the cycle of light and dark movements throughout history. All of this has happened before, and all of it will happen again. Grand is the ultimate weapon, outside the ring itself, and where the ring is deceptively small and plain, 
Grand is grotesquely huge, with a rearing wolf's head like something out of a child's nightmare. And there's a great poetic quality to how Tolkien writes this, with several paragraphs beginning, Grand crawled on, like nothing else matters. Sauron's servants die all around it, crushed by it, killed guarding it, but none of it matters, because Sauron doesn't care about his servants any more than Denethor does anymore. We never see Sauron, the Lord of the Rings, in the Lord of the Rings, but we meet a series of substitutes for him, and one of the most powerful and terrifying of them is his right-hand man, or what used to be a man, the Witch King, chief of the Ringwraiths, and general of this army. He is introduced here as only a hideous shape. It reminds me of Michael Myers in Halloween, and how in the credits of that first movie he's credited only as the shape. That's all he is, an embodiment of evil. Every dark and violent thought given form. And the Witch King is riding forth, just crawling over corpses, this whole sea of bodies, ready to create more. And I, I love the, the ritualistic aspect for this, that he gives the signal with the sword, there's this threefold cry in response as he urges Grand forward, and again the poetic repetition, in rode the Lord of the Nazgul, repeated several times. All of that emphasizes that this is a moment he has prepared for, this is his spotlight moment. And what he's here to do is, is defile this place, to march in, as Tolkien writes, where no enemy had. But the Witch King is also trying to establish his reign. He bears a crown, but with no head beneath it. An image of ultimate power. This is a nightmarish version of the Return of the King. Gandalf stands and defies him just like the Balrog, but where we learn Gandalf ultimately defeated the Balrog, it doesn't seem like it's going to work this time. That even as Gandalf gives his defiance-stirring speech, Tolkien describes him like one of the statues in the Streets of the Dead. He's part of the past, and this is the future. As the Witch King says, this is my time, this is my era, I am death. This is the triumph of death as his sword rises, covered in flames. And then you hear it. The crowing of a cock. And there is a, a religious, spiritual connotation to this moment, in that there are, there are several uh, Christian hymns and poems written about like uh, the rooster crow symbolizing not only dawn, but just specifically the return of Christ and the, the deliverance of the world, the forgiveness of your sins. Even beyond that, though, I love how Tolkien writes this, that specifically... This bird is crowing because none of this is important to him, to nature. That nature is just greeting the sun that is still rising above the dark cloud that seems to threaten and smother everything. It's the spirit of song, of story persisting beyond this long night. And then you get the answering note of those horns. The horns blowing off the mountainside. Because, as the chapter wraps up, Rohan has come at last. And this is just so perfect. It's so cathartic. It makes you jump in your seat. And when you look back, you realize this has been set up so well. They keep mentioning Rohan throughout this chapter. Gandalf says they won't know if Aragorn looked into the stone until the Rohirrim come, if they do. Men look north wondering where they are, while Denethor's counselors say that without the Rohirrim, they're too weak for a serious sortie. Gandalf says, as Faramir heads back to Osgiliath, that the Red Arrow couldn't have reached Theoden more than two days ago, and the Rohirrim have a long road to ride. Denethor keeps looking north, as if waiting to hear hooves on the wind. And then we hear from the gate guards that let Gandalf and Pippin through, a few chapters back, that there is another army from Mordor on that northern road cutting off the city. So even if the Rohirrim do come in time, they won't be able to help. All of this adds to the sense of doom. The cavalry we saw assembled in the previous chapter, the Muster of Rohan, isn't going to be enough. Remember Hurgon, the message from Gondor with the Red Arrow? He was worried the Rohirrim would only show up in time to interrupt the orcs' victory feast. 
and it's starting to look like he was right. But now, here they are, horns welcoming the dawn like that rooster's crow. We'll get into how they did it in the next chapter, but here, it's just so thrilling, sending a tingle down my spine every time. It's like a miracle, the light intervening at the last possible second to counter the darkness. It's a defiance of despair, a statement that this is not the end. So I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movies that came out from Peter Jackson and company, the movie adaptations of the Lord of the Rings, and how they handle each stretch of the material. And I have mostly nothing but praise for how they handled this section. It was such a smart move in adaptation to boil things down in terms of who's going where, because there was a lot of back and forth in this chapter, like Faramir gets back, and then he's sent out again, and then he comes back again. And it's really condensed well emotionally as well as logistically in this part of the movie, that we understand exactly what Faramir is doing, and we we see it happen just enough. It's, it's so emotional with like the flowers that are being scattered under the hooves, and that line from Gandalf they took right from the books, your father loves you, he'll remember it before the end. And then them riding out in a single line, it's an, it, it's a, it's an epic. It's like something out of Lawrence of Arabia or a Ran by Akira Kurosawa, his adaptation of King Lear. And this part of the movie is also the peak of Billy Boyd's acting. And I love how much of the spotlight he gets in Return of the King. And he, he uses every second of it effectively. I love the expression on his face when Denethor asks if he knows how to sing. And Billy Boyd goes, well, yes. And you see this like recognition and shame as he's like, yeah, I used to love singing. Back before my life went to hell, I can't do that here. And the little note of judgment in his eyes and his voice when he says to Denethor, my songs are no fit for evil times, as if judging Denethor for just sitting there and not doing enough about it. And despite all the the military bluster and the swords and the arrows, it's the... The tone of it is so so delicate and sorrowful when Billy Boyd is singing, and there's that, just that incredible editing as we cut between him and Faramir's men on their suicide run, and then Denethor eating his food, and how like the the how the sound design works, where it's it's mostly muted for Faramir's section, but you hear every crunch of meat and vegetable that Denethor is eating to add this visceral element. And what makes that so great is you don't you don't see the arrows make contact when the orcs fire on Faramir's men. But you feel like you have because of that, because you see the the tomato juice running down Denethor's chin. And that's just such classical, perfect storytelling to, to make you feel it without even showing it. That's how you know the filmmakers really have a handle on their audience and really have a handle on what we, not just what we're seeing, but what we're supposed to be feeling. And then we cut to Gandalf sitting alone with the bell tolling, this overwhelming melancholy and failure. It's this... It's a real effort to translate the mythological aspect of the story to the specific language of cinema, and I think it works great. What works less well, as I've said before, is the uh, changes they made to Denethor specifically. His his like total disintegration, where his his jowls are quivering, and Gandalf has to literally beat him down with a staff. Like that's a little that's a little blunt and kind of too wacky in the midst of all this like chaos and horror. It's, you can sense like the filmmakers worrying that they're going to lose us and that they have to they have to do something goofy to, to keep us engaged. And I, I don't even think that's necessary given the height of the drama going on here. But they do emphasize that Gandalf's job is to bring hope, that he's riding around and wherever he goes, people are, are getting back to their posts and doing what they can. And that's contrasted really well with Gothmog, the, the leader of the orcs who, when the men of Gondor start flinging rocks back at them, he just tells his men, stand where you are. There's no attempt to inspire hope because he's all about fear. Fear, the city is rank with it. 
there is coming back to this part of the return of the king there are some moments that just that do feel like you know cgi swarms that it's just a bunch of noise on the screen i know vega mortensen who played everyone has complained about that there are moments like that but overall there's still really solid functional effective filmmaking here like i love the real the real props like the trebuchet you can hear every every clink as it's being moved into action i love they kept the detail of the severed heads catapulted in you know peter jackson an old hand at horror must have always loved that detail from the books most of the effects still hold up and they that they just nailed the the shriek of the nozzle that that nails on a chalkboard shriek you get why people are falling apart and putting their hands up to their ears it's it's just horrible even more effective, I think, is the the glory that is Grand in the movie. The, that wolf's head with the fire in its jaws. Uh, it was just it's just translated so perfectly from the books that it's one of those moments in the theaters I gasped because it was like someone had plugged in and just brought my dreams to life. And again, there's the the jokey bits like when when the trolls come through the gate with their big hammers and Gandalf has his oh shit face on. That's a little it's a little. Uh, to wink nudge maybe given uh, the stakes of what's happening here but Ian McKellen is really selling it at this point with a sense of resolve just barely beginning to break down just barely holding up on what's happening seems like there's no hope and then just as at the end of this chapter the Rahiram arrive and I can't wait to talk about that next time because it's one of the best parts of the movie series probably my favorite part of Return of the King specifically so that is going to wrap us up for this week on The Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com, and you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. So next week, we're going to be doing Book 5, Chapter 5 of The Lord of the Rings, The Ride of the Rahiram, in which we back up a little bit to see how the Rahiram got here in time before unleashing them in full in what might be the most viscerally exciting, thrilling, rousing part of the entire story, both the book and the movie. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Theoden's Last Ride is a hell of a thing. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week for more Lord of the Rings.